Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. Today, we are rescuing retirement. What has happened over the past 40 years is not that people have gotten more flawed or more focused on consumption or somehow don't save enough. What happened is that we developed a flawed system. The system has moved from an automatic system to a voluntary, individual-directed, very commercial platform. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. So many of you write in about your retirement accounts, Uh, whether you're just starting out, which are the best funds to use inside of the retirement account, a Roth versus a traditional option. You want to know what to do. And uh, it's interesting because we've just recently learned that at a time when Congress pretty much can't decide on anything together, it looks like lawmakers are acknowledging that the main retirement savings vehicle, the 401k, needs a little fix up. Don't get too excited. These are not big changes. They're kind of touch ups, not a complete gut renovation. But I was wondering how you could do a gut renovation to retirement. So that's why I invited two really important guests, Teresa Ghilarducci and Tony James. They are the co-authors of an amazing book. It stuck with me after I read it. It really has. It's called Rescuing Retirement, A Plan to Guarantee Retirement Security for All Americans. So here is why Teresa has great street cred. She has spent her career working to ensure retirement security for all American workers. So she is a professor at the New School. She is a labor economist. She frequently testifies before Congress and serves as a source for news outlets all the time. It's a great honor to have someone who is so steeped in this subject matter and specifically to have an economist who can speak English. We love that. Okay. Meanwhile, Tony James is the executive vice chairman of Blackstone. Very randomly, Tony and Teresa have hooked up. Essentially, they say the experiment with 401ks and IRAs from the early 80s, it's basically failed and we've got to do something different. The two have come together with an amazing prescriptive book. I love their ideas. I think this is going to be really instructive for you. We went a little long, so no call after this. Please enjoy this interview because we are here at the Better Off Podcast going to tell you how to rescue retirement. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Teresa Ghilarducci. And plain old Tony James, welcome to the show. It's great to have you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you know how we start the show? We we ask a very uh, searing question. Don't think too hard about this. Best money or career decision you've personally made? Best money decision I ever made was to get lucky with an employer that made me save from the moment I started working. Really? Yeah. You mean you wouldn't have naturally? You're not a natural saver? Because I started my job at 26. Um, I was a professor at 26, and the University of Notre Dame automatically put money in for me, and I just checked the box that I was nudged to do. And um, and started saving since I was 26. So that means you're a domer, isn't that what they call That's it? That's a dome. Uh, <sighs> no, I was a, just a worker. Oh, okay. the domers pay. Oh, I, I see. I was paid. Okay, I got it. Uh, <laughs> Tony, what's your best money or career decision? I think my best career decision was coming out of school to take a job with a nothing of a firm where I really liked the people, 
and not get sort of uh, enticed into taking a job with one of the big-name Wall Street firms. And what was that firm that you took a job with? Donaldson, Lufkin, and Janrette. DLJ! It became successful, but back back then, uh, it was nothing. It was truly nothing. That's amazing. What did you do there? I was one of six people in investment banking. That's it? That's it. Six. So, But you came from investment banking. I did. And then you went to? Well, then, then as DLJ evolved, I started the investing part of the of, of the business, and that grew to be a big profitable part of the firm, and then we sold the firm, and I moved to Blackstone. And now you're about to step down. Is that right? Changing my role a little, focusing more on external and not so much on the internal management. So you have contemplated retirement in your life or not? Uh, yes. I've been working on it for several years. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get hooked up with the brains behind this book? <laughs> well, it's interesting because our, our main business is managing money for pension funds. So we're quite attuned to to beneficiaries, their financial well-being, income, pressures, and so on and so forth. I was preparing for a speech in Washington, D.C., and and reading a lot about the problems of people who don't have defined benefit pension plans. And I started reading a bunch of Teresa's stuff, and I liked it, and I thought that she had some decent ideas, but that if you glued some of her ideas with some of my ideas, we could come up with something pretty cool. So I called her up and introduced myself by phone and said, would you, would you be willing to have lunch with me? And what would you say, Teresa? Well, I said yes, um, because I, I know that people, I'm an academic, and I'm also a trustee of big funds for the state of Indiana, for, um, for United Auto Workers. And I knew that people in the business knew that there was a problem. Mm-hmm. That each of them were going about their their business, managing money or consulting on it, and they all shared the same concern and the same observation that academics did, that people didn't have enough, and whenever someone lost a traditional pension plan, they probably lost a chance to retire as a middle-class re- retiree. So you've identified this problem, which is essentially a, a crisis, because there is a gap between the amount of money most Americans need to save and what they will collect from Social Security. Can you go into like what what has happened with that gap since the advent of the 401k and the decline of a pension plan? Yeah, sure. And even the way that you phrase that question, that there's a gap between what people should have and what people have, often focuses attention on something wrong the person is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact, what has happened over the past 40 years is not that people have gotten more flawed or more focused on consumption or somehow don't save enough, what happened is that we developed a flawed system. That the system has moved from an automatic system where if you worked and you had a pension plan, money was automatically put aside for you, you were automatically in it, you couldn't leave, you couldn't take money out, and the money was invested professionally. And we moved to a voluntary, individual-directed, very commercial platform where people decided to save, and then the employer might or might not put something in it. The person had to um, direct where that investment would go. And worse, and we're seeing it now, 40 years after the system is built, that now people who are lucky enough to do everything right have a big lump of money, and they have to decide how to spend it down. So we're asking from individuals things they cannot do. And so no wonder we have this unfolding disaster. And it strikes me as this weird, unlucky, lucky timing situation, Tony, in that the accidental 401k plan, right, the Ted Benna kind of 
created out of a different reason, but it, it coincides with the beginning of this great bull market in the early 80s. We get the the shift away. I wonder, had it been flipped, if he came up with this brilliant idea and it was in a long bear market, whether people would have said, like, this is horrible and go back to pensions. That's not what happened. And all of a sudden, people thought they were brilliant and they could make tons of money. And it was reframed by the industry as this is about personal freedom and control. How did this whole thing shift from the a pension to a 401k, and how did the industry capitalize on that? I think you're right. I think the the bull market hid some of the problems for a while, but it wasn't the shift wasn't driven by people, employees. It was driven by employers. And it was driven by employers. Why? Because essentially, a 401k is cheaper and less risky for the employer. By definition, therefore, it's worse for the employee. That what what comes out of one pocket goes into the other. So. Employees didn't squawk in mass the way they might have because of the bull market, but it allowed the employer to make a very rational decision of, of, of getting rid of the risk and the volatility and the other things that came with a defined benefit pension plan. Uh, we've hit a time of stagnant incomes. People my generation, not only a lot of us, had, when we started working, our employers had defined benefit pension plans, but we had a great bull market at our back. We had rising incomes. We had strong economies and, you know, and so on and so forth. Last 15 or 20 years, it's been a different kind of picture. And so uh, there were a lot of things that made our generation protected them a little bit because they were lucky, and now the new generation are not lucky, and they're going to pay the price. So, Teresa, I also want to go back a little bit, uh, a little Social Security history, because obviously when the Social Security Act was signed in 1935, it was not intended to be this single safety net for not safety net it was it was intended to be a safety net it was not intended to be the only source of retirement income so can you go back and just give us a tiny bit of history because you know i got to rely on the academic in the room but the, the two of us schlubs we'll just yeah, make anything yeah. up right absolutely yeah great question because the our whole system now is built on the social security platform and our, our proposal builds on the social security platform we copy in 1935, a lot of what the Europeans had already done, and also the Railroad Retirement Fund. It was designed to be a base of support for occupational pensions. So in Europe, they had a social security system, but on top of that, um, strong unions, um, big employers, and a supplemental plan. Um, And the Railroad Retirement Fund also was a base of support for railroad workers, but on top of that, they had their own union-negotiated pension plans. So the idea is that you would have the Social Security Administration would provide social insurance for not just retirement, but it grew to be an insurance for disability and for survivors and for even children. And so the system is insurance, and it's pay-as-you-go. There's not money going into the system being invested and what you have there in the fund is what you get. It's a pay-as-you-go intergenerational contract. So people who are working today pay for their nanas who are retired. When the system was initially conceived, there were a lot more people working than there were people retired. And now that's going to start shifting and the demographics have shifted. But the Social Security was one part of it. 
a pension yeah. was a second part of it, right? Yeah. And the, what was the third part? Well, then? you know, um, on the top, just like you know, the food pyramid where you have sort of your whiskey and your chocolate at the very, very my tip. favorite part, right? Exactly, but it's small, Jill. Oh. It's small. Oh. On the base of your fruits and vegetables and your grains, um, that's your social security. In the middle, you know, with the meat and the milk, um, is your advance funded private pension system and then the very tippy top was to be your personal wealth and for most people that's really their house oh interesting. Um, it's not any kind of personal savings so it was layered not as equal pillars or a three-legged stool that's the wrong metaphor mm -hmm. it was really a pyramid where for most people bottom 90 percent the basis Social Security pay-as-you-go. The middle part is an advance-funded. Mm -hmm. What you put in is what you get, and then on top of that is whatever whatever wealth that you've accumulated. And so now, Tony, there is a somewhat startling gap when we look at all these numbers and you look at every piece of research that says Americans aren't saving enough. And you're right. I realize that, you know, when I'm reading this, this is not to place blame. This is not you are not saying you guys have not written a book that says you stupid Americans need to save more. You're saying the system is flawed. And therefore, we need to break the system, right? Or fix the system. I'd rather put it. That I want to. I want to break it first, and then no, I don't want to do that. Okay, so let's fix the system. So, because, the first, so let me before we do that. But let me just say, there are people who are going to hear this, and they're going to say, "Here's this big financial dude from Wall Street, and he's about to articulate a system that puts money in the hands of Wall Street banks and institutions." Now I want to ask you the critical question, like, why do you care so much about this? I guess one of the things that I try to do in my life is give back to society, frankly, in a lot of different ways. Um, I can't think of a bigger problem than this one to help with. It's not speculation. It is inevitable that this problem will be there. Demographics move slowly, and they're predictable. People with $14,500 average savings do not have a way to get to the 300000 they need to re retire and maintain a middle-class lifestyle. It's impossible now if we don't change the system to help them. So that's what I want to do. If, if, I, if my legacy was with Teresa, we made a difference in the lives of millions and millions of people in their old age so that they could live comfortably, I can't think of a better thing to do with my whole life. Let's talk about how we're going to fix this system. Do you want to talk about fixing Social Security? It's not the thesis in your book that you want to do, but do you want to do? Should we talk so, a little bit about well, that? Well, let me just let me talk about that uh, to start with, because one of the things I came strongly to this, and Teresa probably would have gone and fixed Social Security, but I, I I took the view very strongly that Social Security was such a third rail and such a polarizing issue in Washington D.C. There was no point in proposing a fix to Social Security because it was not going to get enacted. And one of the things that we've tried to do in this book is not just create some theory that no one cares about and is impossible and that a few, a few fringe people love in one party or another. We wanted to create something that was absolutely practical, implementable, and bipartisan because that's the only way we will get something done in America. We're not talking theoretically. We want to get something done. We want to help people. Mm -hmm. Why don't you lay out the fix and what you guys have conceived. So it starts with essentially a plan where each worker mm -hmm. has money set aside and must participate in a retirement, as they say in Britain, scheme, meaning plan. So explain the scheme. Okay. So simply put, 
every worker takes one and a half percent of every paycheck and puts it in their own account in their own name that they control. Now it doesn't go into some government maw, and it's only one and a half percent. I'll come back to that, but it's much lower than anyone thought was possible. That one and a half percent is matched by a, an equal amount from the employer. So collectively, every year, every paycheck from the time they start working at 20 to the time they retire at 65, that money goes into their retirement account. For workers that live paycheck to paycheck, of which there are a lot in America still, we redeploy uh, the tax benefits for contributions to 401k into tax credits to subsidize that 1.5%. That money is already, being, is already in the tax, so it doesn't add to taxes or anything else. It's already in there. We're just redeploying it and making it, frankly, a little more even-handed so everyone in America gets it, not just the, the privileged few that, that take most of the advantage of the 401k deduction. That money then in your own account is then invested with the idea of how do I have the savings I need when I retire? Not instantly liquid that I want to take out tomorrow, but how do I have the savings I need when I retire several decades from now? And that's invested like pension plans are invested. Then when you retire, you get a lifelong annuity for you and your spouse. You don't have to guess, am I going to, or worry, am I going to outlive my savings or how much do I, how much, what do I invest in or how much can I live off or anything like that. You, just like a defined benefit pension plan, you get a lifelong payment as long as you and your spouse live. So it's very much like uh, a defined benefit plan for all of America because it's your money, though, that based on your savings, it doesn't create an unfunded liability. And Teresa, this is also interesting because because it's your account, it's portable. And we know that Americans are moving jobs all the time. So you have this money. So wherever you work, whether you work for yourself or whether you're like your gig worker mm-hmm. or a side mm-hmm. hustle, it's the same one and a half percent that you put in. Now, if I work for myself, I put one and a half percent in as three. Yeah. So I put it in yeah. for one and a half percent as the employer and the employee. Why is the amount so low? It seems so weird to me it. because it feels like that can't be enough. Yeah. So first of all, what we've done is create as close as we could a defined benefit plan, a traditional pension plan for everybody. Um, it's professionally invested, and you get a much higher rate of return in a pooled, non-liquid account than you can in your 401k. So that it, that answers the one question you had. How can you get the minimum with such a low amount? Oh, it's just a minimum. We advise that over time, a person can voluntarily put more money into it. Many people would like to buy more Social Security credits. Many people would have liked to have bought more defined benefit credits, but it wasn't designed that way. Our system is designed so the floor is 1.5% from each, 3% in total. But for a lot of people who might want to increase their standard of living or not just live on the margin after they supplement Social Security, they might want to add more. So we view the 3% as just a minimum to get to 65% of what you earned if you've saved your whole time and you get this higher rate of return. That's the difference. And Jill, I just want to, just to put numbers on that, the average 401k in America today earns a 2 to 3% annual return. That doesn't compound very fast. Mm-hmm. The average pension plan earns between 7 and 8%. That difference, if you think about it, compounding over 40 or 50 years, the amount length That's of a, a career, is huge. Would you Have you tested this with much lower returns? Because the fear being that we're sure. in this low-growth regime and we say, oh, well, yeah. let's say we didn't do 65 yeah. or 7 Let's say we did 4 or 5 How yep. do the numbers look with that? Worse. 
worse if you um, <laughs> if you it. actually if you actually get at you know six percent nominal, then you have to um, boost the contribution rate a little bit more. But that's the beauty so, of so our I plan. So I just want just want to say though, if you look backwards, the average pension pension plan earns 7.65%. We've assumed six and a half on our plan. So we've assumed lower returns. I know, but I'm a wimp. I, no, always, no, no, I always like to look at the worst case. No, right? no, absolutely. And that's the beauty of our design. And the other ones don't have that kind of design, that if you think the rates are going to be a little bit lower, then you're going to put more in. Mm-hmm. It's the flexibility. I just want to say one thing about the payout, and that goes back to Social Security. Right now, um, workers did not clamor to move from a traditional plan um, to a 401k plan. They want some of the benefits of the defined benefit plan. The other major point we have not mentioned here is that we have a system not that just moved from traditional plans to a 401k plan. We have a system that at the very beginning never covered everybody, um, but more people were covered under the traditional plan than they are with a 401k. So the hope was the 401k would be so easy for employers, cheaper for employers, and more popular, and we would we would go from 50% coverage to 80% coverage. That didn't happen. In fact, coverage for any kind of a plan has actually gone down. It's like in the low 40s? It's in the it's high 40s. High 40s. High 40s. Okay. So most people approaching retirement have nothing but Social Security. So the beauty of our plan isn't so much the fact that, you know, it's 1.5 or 2 or 6% or 6.5. It's that everybody who's in Social Security, who works for a living, is in a plan. And it's an easy vehicle that when they go in and out, this is really important for women Mm -hmm. and really important for younger people today. Um, that they have a place that they can put some money. That's portable, and it's wildly better than nothing. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Something is always better. So you say that you could put more in up to what the current 401k limit, 18.5 or another six if you're over 50. What happens when it comes out? Is it taxable? When you annuitize that, is your basis wouldn't be taxed, but your accumulation would be taxed at whatever your nominal rate is at that time? Yeah, well, that would be up to Congress, but our plan was modeled so that it was taxed. Mm-hmm. And so if I wanted to put extra money in, let, so let's frame it that, you know, a lot of people listening, they'll say, I put $18,500 into my 401k. You, you would put one and a half percent in, which is sort of your compulsory amount. Your employer would match one and a half percent. Anything that went in above that up to the limit you do not get a current tax deduction for, right? Right. And then when it comes out, then I will be taxed on whatever the accumulation is above That's my basis. Right. So what is the idea here around the the tax burden? Because I, I, you mentioned it, Tony, and I think it's kind of interesting. You, you sort of said, well, you know, most of the 401k plans, the, the benefits, the tax benefits go to the, to the wealthier people. Explain why that is to our listeners. Well, that's one of the most uh, skewed tax benefits out there. It's even more skewed than incomes. So it, it goes heavily to, to quite wealthy, high-income people. Most of the benefits of those deductions go to people who are not looking to their 401ks for their retirement. What they, they make the contributions, I do too, as a way of reducing my taxes, not because I'm going to look look to that as my primary source of re- retirement welfare. So it's it's a misaligned incentive. Uh, there are benefits to people just because we like to pay fewer taxes. But if we didn't do that, we'd do something else. And then there's all kinds of record keeping and other burdens. It's it's an unloved benefit actually. And even 
even in the recent tax reform, without pressure from anyone else, the Republicans were talking about doing away with it. Explain the the shift and mm-hmm. how this tax, how the yeah. credit would work. Um, just starting from what Tony was talking about, right now we spend $140 billion dollars. Um, not taxing the 401k money that goes in, and every every year there's a buildup that's not taxed as well. So then that's on the table. The federal government taxpayers are subsidizing the retirement system at $140 billion. So put that $140 billion on the table. Then ask yourself, is there a way to change the way that's spent in a way that ensures retirement security, that more people who need it Um, get the benefit, and the people who would have saved anyway could maybe shave that back. So we take the $140 billion that's paid out as a deduction. So the more you make, the more you get. The Mm -hmm. more you put in, the more you get. And without changing a penny of government spending, we transform it into a, a refundable tax credit. So everybody gets $600. Um, the rich and the poor get $600 credit to their account, which, of course, isn't taxed. It comes from the government. But we designed a plan, and this is in the days, a couple of years ago, when actually we thought Congress cared about balancing the budget or <laughs> money coming in, you know, was a somewhat equal to money coming out over some time period. Um, but we think it's a responsible thing to do, to take the money we have now and engineer it so that it's more effective and efficient. I mean, one of the things I mean, it's about, hard to say uh, everyone getting the same isn't fair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Although, right. I mean, I'm sure that some people would be like, well, don't even give rich people the money, right? Like, if maybe you, you, you okay. whatever, well, you can mean to well, We thought that. about that, too, but we decided to just everyone should get the same. It's, okay. hard. it's a fundamental fairness concept. Everyone okay. gets the same, same amount. Okay. I mean, one of the things you might like about our book is the thing that Tony and I like about each other. And that's why when we had that lunch, we talked about before, we were finishing each other's sentences, you know, before the entree came. And that was because we are... We care a lot. I mean, we didn't cry, but we were concerned about the 25 million people who are over 65 who will be poor and living in chronic deprivation because our system was failed, not through any fault of their own. And also, we are, I'm an academic economist, Tony is a brilliant mathematician, and in the business of managing money, we engineer things, we fix things. So the book you might like because it's straightforward and it has practical solutions. Anyway, that's the logic we brought to the tax change. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, we'll get back to our interview with Teresa and Tony in just a second. But, you know, so much of this book is predicated on people learning how to plan for their retirement. Well, how do you know that you are saving and investing for the life that you want? All of this can be confusing. Finances are confusing. Understanding the market can be intimidating. Fortunately, our sponsor, Betterment, is trying to change that. Betterment is the largest independent online financial advisor, and it has designed a service that helps customers build wealth, plan for retirement, and achieve their financial goals. Better Off listeners can get up to one year managed free at Betterment. For more information, visit Betterment.com slash BetterOff. That's Betterment.com slash BetterOff. And now we're going back to figuring out how to rescue retirement. So 
You get the plan, you call it the GRA system, I should say. As you start talking about this with various people you know, whether it's politicians or business people, what's the pushback that you get? I would say there there are a few um, constituencies that push back on different things. Some Democratic constituencies would love to see the problem, in a way, become so bad that there was political and social pressure to fix Social Security, that they think that's a more progressive, more liberal uh, way of addressing the same problem. So there, there, there is that constituency. Mm-hmm. Most of the, the Democrats we talk to, though, think hurting a lot of people to make that change is really not Yes, we don't like not the, net- the right thing to do. Yes, exactly. But Most nonetheless, people- <laughs> there are some who would say, "I'd rather see the system fail so then I can effectuate social security change." Mm-hmm. One of the most hostile groups I would say that Teresa and I met with are the financial brokers. Now, not the asset managers, not the Black Rocks of the world or whatnot, or the Betterments or any of those, um, because uh, I mean I think they they see the merit of this and 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 more assets to manage, of course, are are better for the people that have them, but better for the managers. But the brokers that charged fees to people to move them around in the 401ks, that cost, that cost $50 billion a year out of 401ks that can barely afford it. Under our system, you don't need those anymore. You have pension managers making the allocations. I think that's the cherry on top for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's the second. And then, the, and then I would say the third constituency is there's, there is some concern on the part of particularly small businesses. You'll see our book is endorsed mm-hmm. by several CEOs of big companies, but small businesses who say, restaurant owners say, gee, you know, if I have to put, you know, it's an added cost for me, one and a half percent of my wages now are going into this. On the other hand, if you look at the polling of small businesses, they know their people are vulnerable because they have nothing now. And the last thing a small business is going to do is put in a 401k and have a risk of liability and have to get lawyers and all that stuff. So this makes it so easy. So it actually pulls pretty well because it's a simple, low-cost solution for a problem that they recognize. And in a small business, your employees are almost like your family. You, you know them personally. You see them every day. And, and the idea of someone who worked for you for many years and retiring and then being destitute is not a good one. This totally reminds me of when we were talking about health care. And I remember talking to a friend of my parents who is a small business owner. And he was like, this is outrageous. We shouldn't have to do anything, blah, blah, blah. And I said, let me ask you something. You have a small business. Do you provide health care? And he goes, oh, of course I do. But I shouldn't have to. Yeah. And so I said, but, but you do, right? I think most people do want to provide. I, I really exactly. believe that. I think that if it's framed in the correct way and saying, look, this is how you retain workers. This is how you attract workers. Right now we have uh, every employer, large and small, saying, I just can't get anyone. And it does inure to society's benefits. So you'd have to think that everyone's going to be happier when old people can spend money in retirement as well. Especially small business. Yeah, exactly. They they spend it around the corner. And and the other thing, healthcare is quite expensive by comparison to this. Right. One and a half percent of a company's wages. Wages in most companies are... 40% 40% maybe of total cost. One and a half percent is 0.6% of sales. If all your competitors and exactly. everyone in the business is having that same thing, it doesn't take very much exactly. price increase to pay for it all. Right. Right. And so we have a system, since it's mandated for everybody, I'll just use the word, it's universal, it's mandated, that the employers that really care, the friend of your parents, who actually really cares, doesn't have to compete with someone who doesn't. That's right. And that's that's the main advantage, is that everybody, just like Social Security, some people 
you know, it would, we would have a terrible system if some people could pay into Social Security and some people couldn't. Well, and, I, and by and, the way, that very pressure, that competitive pressure, is one of the reasons that as soon as some, some businesses started abandoning pension plans, they all had to for competitive to. Right, reasons, right? right? So when you look at the, the – I think the cornerstone part of this that really resonates for me was the part that it's compulsory, Right that you must do this. And I know there are going to be some people who hear this and say like, I don't, I am American and I want freedom of choice. But I think about the millions of municipal workers and federal workers who must contribute to a pension plan. Uh, I think in New York, it's what, eight and a half percent off the top of a teacher's salary just goes into the pension. No one seems to push back and say, that is no horrifying. Well, they fight tooth and nail to keep it. Keep That's it. exactly keep it. it. So, we, so we've done focus groups. We found that no one complained about the mandates. The older ones were worried about their kids. And some of the women said, I wish I had had was forced to save, yeah. and then I couldn't get a hold of it. Mm. Yeah. One of the striking things that came out of our work, which wasn't the point necessarily, although there, there's been plenty written about it, but so many people are tempted to take Social Security when they're 62 because the longer yeah. I get it, you know, it's just money. I got to yeah. get it sooner. I want to get it. The government's going broke, all that nonsense. And, 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 and I might only live so many years, so why not get it earlier and all that? That is really a bad financial decision for people personally. If you, the difference between 62 and 70, if you, can, if you have a job that you enjoy enough to, and can do for that long, is 70% increase in your monthly payments. Okay, but if, like, it's, even if you hate your job, that 70% might make me like my job a little bit your, more. For the rest yeah. of your life. <laughs> I mean, come for on. the rest of your life, or, you get or, that. Yeah, or just you know, take whatever money you have, whatever goodwill you have from your friends and family, and just eke it out yeah. until 70. Because you get a rate of return of 7.41% waiting just even a few months. Risk-free. Risk-free inflation Life index. for the rest of your life, yeah. And look, at the Social Security, a lot of experts are on it. Everybody agrees that Social Security needs 2.68% more payroll tax shared equally between employer and employee to fix it. Tony and I didn't need to do that math. Everybody's doing right. it. I always say it's a simple math problem. It's not, it, I mean, listen, healthcare is a much bigger problem, yeah. right? It's like much a, harder it's problem. much harder problem. But this is a math problem. So let's just solve Social Security once and sure. for all. You ready to do it? Absolutely. All right. Now, Teresa, grab your Social Security wand. Mm -hmm. You got it? Yep. Tell me exactly how you want to shore this up and make this system to be what it was intended to be, which is that base part of your your financial future pyramid. What are we going to do with Social Security right now? Easy. Just Easy. do what everybody wants um, the government to do. Raise the payroll tax 2.68% okay. shared equally between employers and employees. Right. No one will notice. Right. No one will notice. Everybody in it, and we're solvent. We'll pay full benefits um, for 75 years. And then- and then add a little bit more to help prevent poverty. And then if you want to do a little bit more for retirement security, yeah. add a little bit more to Medicare to pay for long-term care insurance. And then we have a base in which we can have an advanced funded system where we can take advantage of the stock market, the bond mm -hmm. market, whatever opportunities there are out there, infrastructure, wherever we want to invest in, mm -hmm. and have everybody participate in that investment. I do think we're going to have to raise the taxes, but... I think that because understanding that these politicians are such complete wimps that they, God forbid, they can't raise a tax. So I do think that we're going to have to raise the wage base sure. and have more people pay in. 
And um, and if anything, maybe you say for if you make less than a certain amount of money, you had you get a waiver and you don't have to pay that additional. But there has to be something. I get very nervous about regressive taxation. I really do. So in the same way that you say, look, our 401k benefit is disproportionately going to the higher wage earners. That is true. But we don't want to make a fix to the Social Security system that is disproportionately being borne by the middle. So there it is. That's my. What do you think, Teresa? Oh, I, I, I think actually the Social Security system is quite progressive. They get a much right. higher rate of return for lower income, and then you get the earned income tax credit. Right. If you raise the the base, you don't have to raise the the FICA as tax much. As, right. as much. And it is um, actually a a system that would bring in a lot of money, and it would be consistent with what we've done with Medicare. You've got this great book. You've got a great idea. How are you trying to break through? It's a good question, and I th- I think that we started off very actively talking to people in Washington, D.C., going into the presidential election. We had a lot of support from that with one of the candidates and with a number of people in, the, in primarily focused in the Senate, but, in a, but a few leading members of the House of Representatives. I think we need a moment where where this can move to, to front and center, and if we do, I think we will because I've, I've met with a lot of uh, legislators on both sides of the political aisle. I think we will get support from that when it's not crowded out by something noisier mm-hmm. or more spectacular. Mm. Because it's a slow-moving crisis. It's one of those right. things like climate change. You know, poor people down your block who are old. Um, it's something that's not going to um, get in the news, but everybody is touched by it. And it's a top economic issue. I applaud both of you for making it so easy. So, if you know, we talked about a lot of numbers here. But the essence of this is we are creating a system where we force you to do a little bit for your own good. I think that this is really smart. It is coming. This is happening. And as you say, Teresa, a slow-moving crisis doesn't mean that it doesn't need action. It's happening. Before we leave, we did your best financial or career decision. What is your worst career or financial decision, Tony? My worst career financial decision? Well, that's a good question. I would say uh, right after the crisis um, in 2008, I um, thought that inflation would be going through the roof for whatever reason, and I bought a bunch of inflation hedges, and I lost all my money on that. Not all, but that that was a bad bet. That was a bad bet. Teresa? Well, as a... um woman economist, um, academic economist, I was paid a lot less than men for too long, and I should have spoken up. Yes! I like that one. Speak up, women. And everyone listening, go by Rescuing Retirement. Uh, we will put a link to it on our uh, on our website, and we will make sure that we keep talking to you guys. And would you come back and tell us how things are going? As like when new when new Absolutely. issues emerge, you'll come back and join us. You'll be Mister External by then. You don't have to do any real work. Okay. You don't have Happy to, to. You don't have to wear a tie next time. Okay. Teresa got all made up. Don't worry, we'll take pictures. <laughs> I know, I know. Thank you very much. Right. Thanks, Jill. <laughs> Thanks so much to our guests, Teresa Gilarducci and Tony James, co-authors of Rescuing Retirement. Don't forget, we drop new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. If you'd like to get on the air with us, all you have to do is send an email. It's very easy. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Talercio is the super duper executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13 and we're sponsored by Betterment. See you next week. 